welcome back, Calm listeners. This is Methodical Millions, where you can better your future and better yourself. Cal, we covered Ethereum last week, and you touched on a topic that I thought was interesting and new. It was decentralized finance. So why don't we go into a little bit of detail about what that means and why should we care? Well, you know what? Let's get started with centralized finance. Centralized finance is the financial system as we know it today, which is if you'd like to do a transaction, you have to go through a bank to basically transfer money from one account to another. They have to have services within the banks themselves globally to transfer these funds. They have to have agreed upon rates, all of that stuff. You also have your savings when you put money into your savings account, if you get any return based on that. So all of these things, just a couple of examples are what we know as centralized finance. So you need an intermediary to perform the transaction for you or to perform the service for you that you are trying to do with your money. Now, decentralized finance is basically the opposite of that. Now, you can still perform these services or these transactions, but without a middleman. So that middleman is taken out of the equation. There's no bank. There's no central authority, like a bank or a government, that will be responsible or will monitor that transaction or will go through for you to perform that transaction. And the idea of that basically is to make things less controllable in the sense that it's more free, it happens quicker, it happens with less fees, there's no scrutiny against it, as well as it can be sent from anyone to anyone, basically. Anybody can send funds to anyone else with a much quicker, much more effective, efficient manner. So that's the goal of decentralized finance, as it seems to be. And the appealing thing is for you to have decentralized finance, you need a basis or a platform for you to do it on. Apparently, what it seems that Ethereum is one of, if not the best platform out there that you can create these applications that can perform these services and these transactions at a much more efficient way. So Ethereum is the blockchain itself and Ether, as you mentioned before, is the currency. So based on Ethereum, there are other applications and other tokens and other cryptocurrencies out there that use the Ethereum blockchain. And that way they can perform their own services or provide their own advantages that way using the smart contracts. So that's a very skimmed down version of what decentralized finance means. And the more I look into it, the more interesting it is, even though it can be quite confusing at first. But the idea in general is quite appealing. Yeah. From the quick research I did, it sounds like the mechanics of decentralized finance. So what does financing mean in traditional terms? Maybe borrowing money. And the way this is achieved is through what's called a liquidity pool. So if you have someone like a bank who's willing to lend money at a premium, which is the interest rate, there's a client who wants to borrow that money. And the only difference here is that instead of having a bank doing that lending, the people can assign their Ether or their ERC-20 tokens as liquidity towards loans, towards things. And I was going to play around with it. I've yet to add some 
crypto to a liquidity pool, but it sounds like instead of mining, you're getting some kind of reward. So I don't know if it's like an arbitrage system where someone's borrowing crypto at 5%, you get 2%. We'll have to figure that out. But what I read on Wikipedia was that it's a market-based demand. So I guess if there's more people willing to borrow, maybe you get a higher premium. It'd be interesting to deep dive that. But the idea is Bitcoin was peer-to-peer money transactions. Decentralized finance is the participation in borrowing and lending money in a decentralized way. So this is the evolution of crypto, where you either have gold or you don't. And some got very wealthy, some had a lot of gold, some had a lot of Bitcoin, but not everyone had some. So now if you're on that tier two level of not owning one at 30,000 US dollars at today's market price, roughly, then maybe you want to borrow and get in the game. So there's all these kinds of products that are now around finance. And DeFi is just a fancy way of saying they're decentralized and they're peer-to-peer. There's no main party who's going to act like a bank. And just because something's called DeFi does not make it necessarily. So I had talked about Binance Smart Chain as the big competitor to Ethereum. And I quite like it for the lower fees at this time. It's cheaper to transact and to move coins around on their smart chain. But they are actually centralized. They're their own platform as if Coinbase would make their own DeFi network. And that's slightly more centralized. It's actually by definition centralized. So the fact that Binance has ownership of the smart chain and one day could say, okay, we'll turn it off for, I don't know exactly if it's distributed. That's the nuance here, which is how can something be created by one person or one entity and be decentralized is actually a good philosophical question. And the answer with Bitcoin was that the technology was produced and it had no ownership properties built in. You can own some coins, but no one owns the ledger. You can only interact with the ledger by supporting it, by mining, by being a peer-to-peer host and downloading the blockchain. There's no title against it. And that's the question, I suppose, that comes up with Binance, which is we'll have to look into whether they own all the nodes or is Binance Smart Chain just on their servers or is, can I download a Binance server and host it? And that's going to be, I think, the defining factor, whether something is centralized or not. And as a quick reminder, why decentralized is better than centralized is because if something's centralized, it has an attack vector, it can get hacked. So hacked from someone else holding it. Imagine you left a fancy watch or a gold brick at a friend's house and they left it on the patio because they wanted to give it some sun and just look at it. Maybe there was people in the backyard and saw it. That's called an attack vector where it's not safe. And maybe you hold your own keys and your own passwords, but if other people hold them, then you could be sleeping and not even know you're getting hacked. So that's why things like empty Gox, there was that Quadriga CX1 in Canada, hundreds of millions of dollars got hacked, lost, stolen. These kinds of things are the challenges with centralization. And the only reason people on day-to-day basis don't care about centralization is because there's a branch everywhere. So you trade off a bit of the convenience factor, but blockchain is solving the inconveniences. It's solving high transaction costs of wiring money around the world. It's solving unlimited banking hours where most branches have business hours because their biggest clients are businesses. Why do you think branches own nine to five and you work nine to five because you're not their biggest customer? 
So the whole movement with DeFi is essentially an evolution of the internet, which is connectivity, information sharing, money storage, now these derivative products of money lending and all this kind of stuff. So it's really, really cool, actually, even though it's new. Cal, is there any other important things we're missing based on the fact that the lending terms seem to change based on the market? And it does give someone who is new to crypto a chance to get in. That is right. Let's not forget this is a very new technology, if you like, and it's still at its infancy. So it does have its challenges, but that's natural. That's just normal with anything that's brand new. You'll have your hiccups and your bugs that you need to iron out. But just to touch on something that you mentioned earlier, like you said, yes, you are right about Binance. I'm pretty sure not all DeFi systems are completely decentralized. So they sometimes have services that are partially centralized, I guess. In this case, that's where Binance would fall under. And the nice thing is with DeFi, like you mentioned, there are quite a lot of other services. So like you mentioned, the money market aspect of it, which is the lending and borrowing, you have the exchange side of it as well. So you have DeFi exchanges where you can exchange crypto with very, very low fees, significantly much more efficiency, reduced KYC, know your customer, which is something that is required between for you to open an account at a bank or a brokerage account or between the banks themselves as well. So all of that would be not needed with DeFi, right? Because everything is encrypted, everything is trusted. And to give it a bit more stability, for example, let's say how can you actually perform decentralized finance with something as volatile as Bitcoin and Ethereum? First of all, Bitcoin doesn't really work on the Ethereum blockchain. So that is why it's not focused in decentralized finance, even though it has aspects and attributes that would contribute to it. Ethereum itself seems to be quite volatile. What seems to be appealing here is what they call stable coins in decentralized finance. So these are cryptocurrencies that are usually pegged to an asset that we know in the real world. Some of them would be even pegged to, for example, the US dollar. So USDT could be what they call a non-algorithmic stablecoin. So it is technically centralized, again, because you're going back to the fact that it's pegged to the United States dollar, which requires a governing body to regulate the currency and how it performs. On the other aspect of it, you have some coins. One that seems to be quite famous is DAI, D-A-I. And it is somewhat pegged to the dollar, but it is what they call over collateralized. So you can actually put collateral against it to actually get some DAI currency and then use that in terms of performing decentralized finance services. It can be confusing. So without making it too complicated for our listeners, it's there are risks with that. And you can still perform the lending. You can still lend out your DAI coins or currency. So that way you can get interest on. And because there's risks to that, and because we've heard even stories of some funds being completely hacked into, there are actually services like insurance through DeFi, which I find very interesting. So use the smart contracts that you put into the Ethereum blockchain. And to answer your question back to what you asked John earlier is that once you put that contract out there, once the terms are there, you cannot change them. They are immutable. You can't control it. It goes based on whatever is there, what's mentioned on that contract, and no one owns or controls it. So that's the appeal of it. You can, for example, 
open an account with an exchange, and then you can transfer your currency to DAI. And then from there, you can lend it out and then get insurance to cover you in the event that something doesn't happen all through decentralized finance. And the idea of that is what makes it very, very appealing and very, very interesting and very cool to me at least. And this is just starting and you have that much capability to do all of these things. So imagine what we can do down the road. Imagine what we can do a year from now and five years from now. It is very, very promising. And because Ethereum is the blockchain of choice for most developers that create the apps, that create the coins that can work on that platform, that's where you can get the ability of really maximizing and facilitating all these decentralized finance services that we do it every day, but requires a lot more fees, a lot more time, and quite a lot of hassle sometimes if things go wrong. So what you touched on about the USDT, is that stablecoin actually, I don't think the US government's involved in that coin. Do they have any involvement or did someone just decide to mimic the supply of US dollars? And can you arbitrarily take a stablecoin and just start printing the equivalent of US dollars to match it? Or how does that work exactly? The basic idea of it is that USDT is not completely decentralized. So that token would be pegged against the US dollar, right? So what it is, let's say an institution would create the USDT. And because it's pegged to the dollar, one USDT equals to approximately $1, they would always have the funds in dollars or the amount in dollars within their books to match the USDT that's out there. And that's how they can ensure that it's always pegged to that amount. But DAI would be different because even though I think it is somewhat influenced by the US dollar, it's a bit more than I can understand right now, but there is more collateral against it. That way it would actually not get influenced as much as the movement to the dollar. That gives it an advantage of being a bit more stable than other currencies. But USDT is a completely other aspect of it. It's quite popular because a lot of people would use USDT and they would be pegged against another asset and be used quite actively in crypto exchanges to transfer funds or to exchange currencies. I mean, I've used USDT on Binance itself. To me, the value there is in terms of settling your account. So let's say you're a J trader in Ethereum or Bitcoin, even Binance, which Binance coin BNB went up from like $20 to $400 US in months as well. So the amount of appreciation we see on these coins is insane. But some people's strategy might not be to hold these coins forever. Maybe they want to settle in USDT and then wait back for a cool down period and buy back something like Bitcoin, which Bitcoin is trading at two and a half times less than its all time high from a couple months ago. That's an opportunity to make 2x on your money. And now you own double the Bitcoin. If you had sold your Bitcoin at the peak and settled in USDT, the exchange will park your money in some number of dollars. So if you have 100,000 US dollars in USDT, unless the world falls apart and they can't send you that money back, again, those extreme cases just do happen, you will be able to debit your 100,000 US dollars. Binance has some crazy VIP system where you can debit thousands of Bitcoins, which is millions of dollars. So 
the opportunity is there to almost make your own mini hedge fund and grow your wealth. And all these products are an experiment. I think what people think of investing is almost like the uninformed. I find, think of it as a gamble, meaning like a horse race ticket. You buy a ticket, maybe you make money, maybe you lose. But it is more nuanced because you could study just like day traders do and see, look where charts are going, look for patterns. If you know Bitcoin trades at 20 to 60,000 US dollars and it's at 10,000 US dollars, that could be a signal to say, well, long term, I believe it's worth more. I'm going to buy. And how do you buy? If you were already holding Bitcoin, you can't. It's depreciated. But if you were holding US dollars or USDTs, then you could. You could have some capital base to reinvest into Bitcoin. And this is essentially how people grow. And we've talked about this before, but the fact that it's new means much of Wall Street, much of the MBAs and Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan just opened their own Bitcoin funds. Grayscale is probably one of the biggest. They own a huge amount of Bitcoin, LTC, and Ethereum. And they're essentially money managers. So if you're a rich bigwig, you've got $50 million, $100 million, and you want to put 5% in Bitcoin, you might say, okay, give it to Grayscale. They'll make you whatever returns they get. And the only difference between someone like Grayscale and someone like Cal or some random person around the world is deciding when the money goes in, when it goes out, and your strategy. And with the power of the internet, you can make your own strategy and you can, as I said in the past, 6x, 10x, 12x is quite normal in the traditional markets in growth tech. But crypto, the returns people are seeing of 100x in a month or two in something like Dogecoin or 1,000x returns or 10,000x returns since inception, these kinds of returns are reserved for angel investors. Really early on, we had talked about how to make it big angel investing and what the mechanics are. But that's a good example of centralization. Until maybe just recently, the SEC came out with a course to start letting people invest. But I think this is also a shift because of crypto. If the SEC is a business and the stock market is a business, which banks have an interest in seeing liquidity and seeing people use it, if everyone's abandoning the stock market for crypto, everyone under 25, everyone under 35, wants to go that way, the stock market will be a very barren place. And this is essentially the risk factor long-term if centralization does not keep up peer-to-peer music sharing, Napster, Kazaa, and LimeWire, downloading stuff. That was a way of life. And that whole idea of piracy brought upon a digital marketplace through Apple Music. And it also brought upon things like Netflix. So Without the pressure of peer-to-peer file sharing, we would never have digital music. We would never have Netflix itself, or it would take much longer to create. This is the innovator's dilemma for centralized businesses or legacy businesses, which is, why would you cut your profit margins? And very ambitious companies like Tesla or Amazon do cut their profit margins by reinvesting just to grow, just to be so far ahead. This is the secret to anyone in the race. The whole idea is long-term, although it's new, it should be scary for big banks because if they have no exposure to crypto or no exposure to these products, eventually behavior will shift. It's like the car business in Uber. 
why are brands going electric and into ride sharing? Because that is a macro risk and that is what will become popular. And the Codex example is the most famous. What happens if you're in business with $10 billion worth of product the year that no one wants it? You're going to liquidate, you're going to go bankrupt. So the secret here, whether it's someone on their own trying to build their wealth by using these finance products on DeFi, or you're a big company wanting to stay in the game, everyone should learn about this. Everyone should research it. Everyone should play around with it. And we've said countless times, get a wallet, try it. There's so many now. And when I started playing with Bitcoin and Dogecoin and Litecoin, it was just one program you download. Then we saw exchanges. Then we saw these mobile wallets you can download. Again, centralized, you don't own your coins, but it's different and there's competing products. Now there's more exchanges. Binance is only from 2017. That's not long ago. That's almost 10 years after Bitcoin was created. So there's always a place and a time where new players will come up. I just wanted to reiterate that it's not too late. It's not too early. Get in, have fun with it, play around with it. I think the two most popular right now that seem to be floating around are MetaMask and Trust Wallet. You can get those both on your smartphone. Go to your app store, download them, make an account. You have to fund some Ethereum or BNB as well, Binance coin in there. And then you can start adding to the liquidity pool. You can start essentially getting contract addresses to thousands of coins. And, and that's where the MMS Methodical Million coin was made through Trust Wallet. And they have a coin tool where you can make one. Again, it's still so new, but the fact that you can play around with it, you can eventually have thousands of wallet holders of your own coin. For what purpose? That's up to you. But this is back to the utility aspect. Who's to say this won't be a certain coin for schools or maybe you get paid in Amazon coin. You could get paid in localized crypto and it could be more efficient where Amazon leverages DeFi to maybe say, I'll give you 10% more on your paycheck if you take your paycheck in Amazon coin versus US dollars. What do you think is going to happen to the US dollar after that happens? I think the US dollar is probably the most utilized currency in the world. What percentage of that is in companies and money transactions? What happens when Amazon, Tesla, McDonald's, Walmart take DeFi into their own hands and essentially stop using US dollars only in extreme cases? What does that world look like? And is that even possible? Is that a macro risk for the US dollar, especially since I've heard in the past that part of why US is in the Middle East is to ensure that that's the currency trading with oil. Because without that, what is the value of a US dollar? And what happens when employers switch to that? As we said, when you switch planets, no one's going to use US dollar, likely not. So whether it's now five years or 20 years, we will see a shift in the dominant currency. And if it's not the fact that US dollar is unpopular, it's just that people who own US or Canadian will not only own one anymore, you will own probably a five or 10 to one crypto to US dollar in terms of amount of coins you own. That will be the future. I would think it'll take quite a long time for the US dollar to lose its status of the world's reserve currency, but it is possible. And this is an example of it and things like this take time, but it's the proof of concept again that we keep going back to. So the fact that the concept of DeFi has been around for a handful of years and it's already showing this much impact. You have large institutions getting into this field right now. 
banks with trading desks in cryptocurrency. You have companies that are adopting cryptocurrency. You have financial institutions like Visa and PayPal and companies like Square and Tesla even adopting cryptocurrency or allowing the use or purchase of their services through crypto. MicroStrategy, I think they have most of their cash holdings in Bitcoin, if I'm not mistaken. So all these companies, and this is just at its infancy, it has to have some sort of impact. What kind of impact will it have against the dollar? I guess we'll have to wait and find out because I can't imagine how much it will change it. But what I do believe is, from my personal opinion, it will take time. This is not going to happen overnight. It's ultimately a very strong currency, even though it's been having its weak moments right now with all the QE. And it'll take time, but it's not here for the short term. Yeah. So to wrap up, let's place a bet. I'll make it a simple one. First, S&P 500 company to pay their employees with crypto or give the alternative. I would say under five years. Within the next five years. It's a reasonable time frame. The reason I say that is I just think that to really prove it, I think people need to see that there's a bit more stability and less volatility in cryptocurrency. But that's just my opinion. Yeah, I guess that's the step one for the US dollar to get displaced, start small. And that's how any disruption happens. Like Amazon started with books. They didn't take over the world overnight. Took 20 years. Who's going to stop them now? And that's the power of momentum when you have this moving force of usage going up, utility and value. That's all I want to leave off with, which is crypto has a clear value now. These derivative products are being built all on top of these blockchains. And the fact that companies are trying to build anything from trading desks to their own blockchain services to these coins that have huge market caps and by extension, these companies get very wealthy, we will see a shift in this space. And the fact that Coinbase is public, the mix of S&P 500 companies is skewed tech, I know, but we're going to see it skew crypto as well. In under 10 years, we'll see a lot more IPOs in the crypto space. Mark my words. So with that said, let's wrap up today's episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of Methodical Millions, where you can better your future and better yourself. Thanks, everyone.